Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vaseem Akhtar. Today, I'm joined by two management and technology experts to discuss the impact of artificial intelligence on the job market and to discuss hybrid working environments where AI and humans will work side by side. My first guest is Thomas Devonport, a distinguished professor of information technology and management at Babson College, visiting professor at Oxford University and a fellow of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. And my second guest is Stephen Miller, Professor Emeritus of Information Systems at Singapore Management University. Today we are going to discuss their recent book, Working with AI, Real Stories of Human-Machine Collaboration. Tom, Steve, thank you very much for joining me. Welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Let us start with this uh, point that today's AI is narrowly focused on specialized tasks. Autonomous vehicles, independent decision-making for very specialized tasks, chess, go, and these type of projects. But your book focuses on the environments where AI and humans can work together. How did the idea of uh, uh, the book emerge? Tom, if I start with you. Sure. Well, I've been interested for a while in that issue and actually wrote an earlier book with Julia Kirby that was um, around in gen more generally the idea of augmentation. It was called Only Humans Need Apply. And um, we had a number of examples of people who worked with AI, but they, they were brief and um, not um, as voluminous as one might hope. So I was very interested in taking the idea a little further to find examples of people who worked with AI on a day-to-day -day basis. It sort of seemed to me it was uh, uh, um, when I would write um, magazine pieces or blog posts about it, I called it the future of work now in a sense, because uh, a lot of people thought that would happen frequently in the future, but um, it was our hypothesis proved to be true that a lot of people were doing it as we speak. So, I believe initially you were considering the title of this book along the lines of uh, a future of work. The future of work now, I think um, I had in mind, you know, my art editors have ultimate control over titles and um, our editor didn't like that one so much. I'm not sure why, Steve, maybe you remember, but um, I did publish uh, a number of these pieces, some of most of which I guess I actually wrote a few because I, I tried to co-author them with Steve in Forbes, but they wouldn't let me do that. And I almost got fired as a result. So I ended up taking more credit than I deserve for a few that Steve actually wrote. But they, those were all sort of subtitled or the, the category title was the future of work now. Steve, do you think that this title uh, is, is better or if we had put something about the future of work, that would have been better? Actually, the future of work, you know, is one of these buzzwords that comes up. But there's something that's resonating with this title. And we see it as a result of the podcast and a result of some of the write-ups. So even though the editors made this change I think it's turned out to work well in terms of receptivity for the world out there. There's just something about the front and the back part of that phrase, working with AI, 
real stories of human machine uh, collaboration. It just, it just hooks. There's sort of like this little Velcro hook and without sort of the buzzwordiness, it, it just gets the people right inside and they perk up. So all for the better, I would say. And the, and the good thing that is that if you, if you Google the future of work, you get, I don't know, an ungodly number of, of um, uh, sites. If you Google working with AI, ours comes up first. Um, so that turned out to be an advantage as well. And let us stay with this uh, concept of future of work. And when it comes to artificial intelligence, uh, people are worried about future of work. People are worried about humans, that will humans become redundant? And uh, Tom, as you just said that you Google future of work and in the context of AI, most of these research publications will try to inform you that AI will take our jobs and and AI will start doing whatever humans are doing. Uh, Tom, I'll start with you. And Steve, I would like to have your input on this as well, that how much truth is is in this statement that AI will take our jobs and up to the point that humans might become redundant? Well, I mean, uh, that that statement involves the future. AI will take our jobs. Uh, judging from the present and the past, um, that statement is not truthful. Um, uh, who knows what will happen in the future? It may be that AI will become, you know, so capable and so intelligent that it can do everything humans can do and more um, in every aspect of life. And they um, will will all be out of jobs soon. It will be doing podcasts like this one uh, before you know it or whatever. But certainly our experience has been that augmentation of, of um, humans by AI and, and vice versa is a much more likely outcome in um, the near future. And we think one that's more desirable for organizations and certainly for the um, human race um, than large-scale automation. Steve? All right, so let me, a, a few points here. One is the book itself is evidence that there's um, more opportunities for augmentation, where by augmentation, I mean, we're using the machine to complement and amplify what the human can do. So there's more opportunities for it, as well as more occurrences for it than people realize. So the default that people think new technology by automation, we mean displacement, at least from an economic perspective. Why is that the only thing people are defaulting to? So our book doesn't say there isn't automation going on, right? There's automation going on well before this new wave of AI picked up. And obviously, this new wave of AI will only extend the reach of what full automation and the ability to displace tasks can do. So you'll see more of that, but without even looking hard and uh, trying to like really search for it, we found examples of augmentation widely spread, small firms, medium firms, large firms, a wide variety of industries. 
Now, let me make another point where I'm reciting some facts, building on some of the work of the labor economists uh, from various universities who've um, looked at this issue in detail. But I think it will uh, get the audience to, to, to sort of put this in perspective. Let me just take the United States. The approximate employment in 1940 was about uh, 50 million people. Okay, now let's think of what's happened since 1940. That was the very dawn of computerization. So you've had decades of computerization in the workforce. Tom has followed a lot of that progression since the 70s, Tom, you know, whenever your first book started to come out on that. And uh, everything you can think of from semiconductors to the internet, mobile phones, from 1940 to roughly 2020, right? So then we had 50 million employed in one economy. I'm taking what is the large, world's largest economy, at least as of now. And now there's about 160 million employed. There's more technology, more tools, more automation than ever. And there's over three times the appointment. So often what gets automated is the work of today and the work of yesterday. Things that are familiar, things that have become so familiar, they're a little bit routinized, and things that you do at high volume with some degree of variability, but a limited amount of variability. So without going into details, if, if one were to, as some uh, prominent labor economists have done, a, a team at MIT and people involved some other institutions as well, and they compared the detailed uh, Bureau of Census job titles of the jobs in 2018 to the jobs literally in 1940, um, and they found about 60% of the detailed job titles in 2018 actually didn't exist as detailed job titles in um, 1940. Now, there's some approximations to do this, right? So this is not decimal point precision, but you get the general idea. Now, the other interesting thing about that story is they could not have done this analysis without the ability to be augmented by AI. And specifically, I mean the ability to go through patents and the evolution of technology and all these census job titles it, it was a kind of analysis that literally would have been impossible without the use of language technology to support the building of their databases, which in itself is an example that the new technology creates new work. So are we going to automate some of the work of today and yesterday? Of course, we'll automate more of it. Now, the issue is how will we align the policies, if you will, and the motivation and the willpower so that we use this thing to create new kinds of work? Because there certainly is no shortage of problems and there's certainly uh, no lack of things to do. There are a large number of very good uh, examples in the book that we will discuss shortly uh, and we will dig deep on some of those examples. But Steve, if I just stay with you for a moment that in your research, you discuss the concept of hybrid intelligence. Uh, talk to us about that concept that is this where AI and humans will work together hands in hands. Uh, I'm not sure right. hands in hands is the right analogy right. here or not. So, 
you know, the idea of people working together with tools goes back as, you know, till the as early as primitive times, obviously, where the first person figured out how to use a torch of fire or a stick, right? So the idea of augmentation is as old as humanity itself. And as computerization has come along, there have been all kinds of new forms of augmentation. Something that really gets people to understand augmentation well is a spreadsheet. It automates micro-tasks, but still the financial analyst, um, the, the person doing the business case model, the person doing the cost benefit thing, there's so many sort of other considerations they have to bring in it, and we uh, automate the things that we all know spreadsheets are wonderful at doing. All right. So yes, computers enabled by AI methods extend the range of what we can expect machines to do. And without going into technicalities, in the prior generation of computing and even the prior generation of AI, you, you could write software to do it, but you had to be able to specify the logic and the process explicitly. And that was always a constraint. And as you know, Tom's early work on knowledge-based systems and whatnot, uh, it was doable. Some great systems got built, but there were scalability issues and there were maintainability issues and there were knowledge transfer bottleneck issues. So um, there, there, there's sort of like an interesting paradox that early in the history of computing, people demonstrated that you could use computers for more than computation. You could use them for symbolic processing, the processing of symbols. And people did algebraic proofs. And, and there were the early generations of AI based on rules and knowledge-based systems. But people didn't realize that will hit a scalability uh, plateau. And we always knew computers have been good for number crunching, right? I mean, it's sort of the intuitive thing. That's ultimately what computers do. And what a lot of this machine learning and deep learning has ended up doing is the ability to take fairly complex tasks that are very hard to describe and, and reduce it to sort of really straightforward, old-fashioned number crunching. I mean, it's multi-dimensional ve vector spaces and you know it gets a little fancy in the math. But the, the irony is good old-fashioned number crunching has allowed us to address types of problems that we couldn't get to through the more so-called sophisticated symbol processing, okay? So it lets us do new kinds of things, all right? So uh, can we automate more? Yes, but can we now do types of scientific discovery that we can never do? Yes, can we create kinds of materials that we can never explore before? you know, given the times and everything you needed to do. Can we create new kinds of molecules? Now, these are a small number of people who do this kind of exploratory stuff that I'm talking about. But as more of that happens, it's going to generate new products and services. But will there be dislocation? Will there be some people whose work of today is more conveniently automated 
And the new task of tomorrow, which tend to be labor intensive, because new tasks usually tend to be labor intensive, will it be the same person? So there's going to need to be some transition management. And, it, you know, not everybody can end up as Uber drivers. And if you're 50 years old, it's okay to end up an Uber driver. But if you're 25 or 30, it's not, you know. So the, these are some of the interesting issues. This leads us nicely to my next question. Tom, you have done a lot of work on AI implementations or possibility of AI implementations in enterprise environment. Now, enterprise environments are different. Data exists in silos. And also, if you look at the way today's AI works, it means that if there is an enterprise, if there is an organization that wishes to implement artificial intelligence, they will have to do process reengineering. They will have to uh, get rid of these data silos. They will have to achieve data integration. Uh, These are uh, important steps. So I want you to take them step by step. So how ready uh, our organizations are to, to to implement AI solutions and then get huge benefits from them? Um, it's an interesting question. I do agree that all of those um, activities are necessary for, you know, production deployment of AI on a large scale. I think um, uh, at the same time I was working on this book, I was working on another book, which is about companies that are really quite aggressive in their use of AI, and they were doing all of those things. Um, we certainly, I think, encountered some of that in the organizations we um, interviewed for this book. Um, some were more kind of, um, you know, relatively standalone or enabled by uh, the tool from a particular vendor and not highly integrated with everything else that's going on, there did need to be in almost every case some change in the process and some change in the skills of the people using the system. Um, In some cases, the use of the system was voluntary, which I think um, made it somewhat easier of a change management task, um, but obviously slowed down broad scale deployment. So our general, I think, conclusion is that while AI can be developed relatively quickly, certainly compared to the past, the large scale implementation, even small scale implementation in some cases, takes much longer and involves much more change within an organization. And, um, There are a number of companies that obviously aren't ready because all they do is, you know, pilots and proofs of concept and so on and never really implement Mm -hmm. much of anything. Well, I've seen there's a very important point between what you just raised and the set of questions you were raising early and earlier. And there's an interesting it wasn't designed to be this way, but it is almost like a self-regulating mechanism. To have the bigger, bigger impacts, you need the deeper, deeper integration across the multiple parts of the organization. But to get that, as Tom has studied so extensively over the decades, as I have looked at in my work for various things I have done, and um, so this is experience we have outside the particular case studies, uh, it, a lot of things have to happen. 
Uh, I mean, we we looked at one of our case studies, DBS Bank, uh, put well over $600 million into improving infrastructure over like a seven, eight year period. And now uh, they're not a Google or a Facebook, but for a company that's not that type of Google, Facebook, Microsoft, they have productionized the ability to build almost any next AI system they want. But it comes realistically after a decade of really hard work of building that ability to productize. Mm-hmm. All right. So as, as Tom said, there are some companies like that, but in the scheme of the totality of companies, a small number. So it, there are credible numbers that have made the point that everything else you need to do to make the end-to-end process and end-to-end set of systems work can be four times to 10 times the cost of just the so-called AI component. As important and critical as AI is, usually in interesting end-to-end systems, there are a handful of examples, it's a critical part, but it's a small percentage of the total effort. Mm -hmm. Because the data's got to come from someplace, the data's got to go to someplace, and all these processes have to be aligned. So uh, the impacts can be substantial, but the effort to get that aligned, interestingly enough, is very labor-intensive work and time-intensive. Change is a great line of business to be in. It's very (laughs) labor-intensive. And just staying with the same concept that uh, if we look at uh, RPA products, robotic process automation products, there are very good products out there. And theoretically, if you look at those products, you can see that organizations can benefit immensely by using these type of automations. But for that, what Steve said a couple of moments ago, that you need uh, uh, you need to front load a lot of homework before you actually start using uh, these products. But again, uh, and then first to Tom and then to Steve, uh, that uh, organizations, particularly in this fast moving environment, are they willing to step back, revisit their processes and then redesign them so that they are aligned with these future technologies, uh, RPA or other uh, emerging uh, artificial intelligence systems? Um, You know, I I think um, it's maybe normally distributed um, and uh, some are, some aren't, but the the ones that are really doing well are in the, the, you know, the the tail of the distribution. Um, I certainly a number of the companies that we interviewed were working with external vendors, and that makes life easier in terms of developing the the um, the AI in particular. Um, uh, but even then, there's a fair amount of change involved, and um, we we didn't want to. Kind of overwhelm the reader with all of the changes that were necessary, but um, we certainly noticed that people had to be retrained and they had to change their behavior, and um, they were working with a new process, and some liked it and some didn't. But uh, I think maybe one of the things that is most surprising is we we didn't call up anybody after hearing about what they were doing, and they said, "No, that was a total failure." Um, 
uh, don't don't write about it. Um, there were a lot of successes. I mean, I suppose you could argue, Steve, that uh, the flippy hamburger um, solution, hamburger flipping robot, was the least successful of all of our examples, and um, even it seems to be finally catching on. It wasn't catching on much at the time we did we right reviewed. And and let me take Flippy because in some ways, as Tom said, it was the least successful, but it had a niche. They found Tom did up this interview and uh, write up, but it it wasn't going to replace everything that a front counter person could do. But coming in for French fries was great because of the nature of the task. But there were a bunch of other things that still had to be done. So. Um, and all tools sort of have their niche, right? And to the extent that you want to have the niche be broader and broader and broader, the upfront effort and the process engineering and everything else that has to be aligned has to be more extensive. One thing, I finished my PhD almost 40 years ago, uh, getting on 40 years at Carnegie Mellon. And why do I mention that? Because the topic of my doctorate, and this is sort of why I've been interested in this line of work my whole professional life, was the flexibility efficiency trade-off in manufacturing as a result of bringing in computer-integrated manufacturing, computer control versus the previous generation of hardwire controls, and the first generation of truly programmable robots. All right. So one thing that was true then that's still true now, although the frontiers have changed, is when you highly automate, you get the consistency, you get the efficiency, you, you get productivity. And even though computers are programmable and give you a more adaptable adaptability, and even AI-enabled computers sort of stretch that adaptability, when you really go high levels of automation, you get tremendous efficiency and you get mm -hmm. tremendous constraints. Mm -hmm. All right. So the, the, the products have to be in a certain part of the life cycle. The volumes have to be at a certain level. The confidence that things are going to be close enough in this sort of range of variation that I can bring the intense degree of automation. Um, and this is true for both uh, white collar work as you know, well as factory work. And then of course, there's the adaptability. So the dream in industry, both for service work as well as manufacturing, is, is starting to have the variability of the one-off custom anything with the efficiency of mass production. All right? And, and, and you can conceptualize this to office worker this. And AI will change the frontier. It will, through augmentation, let us get more productive in doing adaptive things, explorative things, experimental things. And it will give us more adaptability in things that we want to run the heavy automation and uh, sort of trade off, if you will, uh, less changeability for, for, for more efficiency. Right. So it, it, it will change those frontiers, but you're still going to have that trade off. And th think about how volatile the world is today. Not, not that it's been any 
volatile 10 or 20 or 30 years later. I mean, earlier, because the world's always volatile. So there will always be regimes and times when a company will say, let's go for the automation to the degree that we really can displace. But you're making a big risk management bet. Versus, let me throttle back the automation. I can still get enhancement of productivity, but but I'm going to keep the human in the loop. I need the adaptability. And I, I don't need to explain for today's times why that's often a good strategy and a both a good risk mitigation strategy and an innovation strategy. So there's some mitigating factors about just how far you want to turn the knob on mm-hmm. really heavy duty automation. Just to give an example of that, one of my interests for a while has been in this whole area of robo advice or AI assisted wealth management for investing. And the one that we profile in the book is that Morgan Stanley, um, and they made a very conscious decision to keep their human financial advisors. Um, It turns out that across the industry, the companies who try to fully automate the process without um, any um, humans being in the loop for financial advice have not done terribly well, have not grown assets under management and so on. The ones like Morgan Stanley that said, you know, we can um, complement the work of the human advisor with some great um, ideas from a machine learning program about um, personalized ways that the the client could invest, they tend to do much better. Um, And I think we find that in a variety of other settings that um, it not only gives you flexibility, but it gives you the ability to understand the broader context. It gives you the ability to preserve the relationship. Um, so machines aren't terribly good at that, we found out. So let me take what Tom said and let me bridge back to Wasim, what you had raised earlier about this hybrid intelligence. So even before the age of the current uh, wave of AI, we knew and know that machines are good for consistency, precision, efficiency, and speed. Okay, but um, had limited degrees to which they could understand a changing environment. Now, the idea of sensors and sensing the environment's not new. I mean, back to the 60s, 70s, 80s, they had degrees of being able to make automation a little more context aware, but in such a targeted, narrow way. And admittedly, with today's data, with today's AI approaches, all the other digital data, yes, yes, the means of working, the production can become more context aware. But it's still such a limited extent of context awareness compared to what the humans know, because they talk to their buddies, they had conversations with people outside the company, other things going on. Tom had a few great case studies where like the fundraiser just knew stuff about the community and some of the prospects that just aren't in the database. So the human ability to 
understand context and to sort of be able to do sense making with very little data, sometimes none at all, is unrivaled. And it's not about to be rivaled soon. So this issue of how do we, in the modern industrial engineering, the modern cognitive engineering, you know, people, what's the role of people and machines? We've been looking at that in detail since the 60s, the 70s. But AI takes automation, even partial level task automation, into more so-called cognitive tasks. But here, here, here's the nub of the issue. Just because a computer can do something spectacularly well, and in some limited areas, far exceed a human in terms of precision, speed, efficiency, um, if you have data, if you have a stable environment, a valid model, you know, the, the machine way will outperform the human, statistically speaking, right? Assuming the world doesn't change, right? Assuming the world doesn't change. So how do you combine those capabilities with the amazing human abilities to sense context to know what the right and wrong thing to do is, at least some humans in some circumstances. We have too many political examples where one wonders about that, right? Um, the ability to persuade people to take action, not to take action. The idea of even exploring a new idea. Do we even bring a new topic on the agenda and put money into it? You know, so... Uh, the nature of human cognition is not about to go extinct. And in fact, there's a potential to amplify it greater than there has ever been in history. And yes, while there is that threat of displacement, if people choose to do that, there's also the ability to address problems in ways that would have been impossible to consider years back. So it all comes back to sort of like, I won't say exactly good and evil, but the way people choose to move forward with this technology. When this wave of big data arrived and the buzzword arrived about 10 years ago and organizations were encouraged to develop their data strategies and many organizations then developed their data strategies. But when we look at today's uh, AI applications, Still, there is a huge disconnect because AI applications and AI is trained using organizational data, whatever they want to automate, they need that data. My question is that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Tom, you have done a lot of work on that, that in organizations like the data strategy, is it aligned the requirement of present day or even emerging or future AI applications where you just data is just ready, it's integrated, it's there and you, you have RPA or anything else, uh, other technologies and you just start using that. Is there a disconnect? Or, uh, as, as Steve uh, alluded to this, that it will take time. We are moving in the right direction. That's an interesting question. I, um, in a totally unrelated project to this book um, with Amazon Web Services and an MIT chief data officer symposium. I have been interviewing lots of chief data and analytics officers. And um, 
When I first started talking to them, um, I talked to several chief data and analytics officers who were relatively um, early in their jobs in a particular organization. And they said, you know, it's really important for us to, um, in this role, to show value quickly. And so we picked two or three use cases that we're going to develop and get buy-in for. And it's really important that we show value by, you know, completing and deploying these three, two or three use cases. Um, and I thought, oh, well, clearly that's the, the way to succeed in this job. But then I ended up speaking later in the research to um, people who are in the same job at organizations like Capital One and like um, uh, Kroger. We have a case study about Kroger and their 84.51 degrees um, data science subsidiary in the in this working with AI book because they're using automated machine learning to kind of change the way people work with AI. But those um, data leaders said, yeah, you know, we're beyond that two or three use cases. We, we have lots of them now and we're building infrastructure. We're, bu we're building reusable data sets that anybody can take advantage of. We're building feature stores of, you know, um, AI um, machine learning features that can be reused over and over again. Um, I was talking with AT&T the other day and they said, um, you know, we have these ready to use churn algorithms and all you have to do is ask for the API to send you a churn um, prediction and it's very easy to incorporate in, in any program that you're developing, even by kind of citizen developers. So. I think some organizations are there, most are not there and are just trying to sort of do some useful things with AI and um, maybe build on top of that, but at a relatively slow pace. So let me pick up on two points that Tom had raised. One, one was exactly the set of things he just referred to, to this small set of firms who are doing extraordinary things on flow systems, pipeline, continuous flow, and the ability to writ large productionize the process of moving in new applications, right? And before Tom made reference to the notion that it's a spectrum, it's, you know, like the normal distribution. And this one, it might not be the normal distribution. It might, it, 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 it might be a distribution where uh, you have this small cluster of these very special firms and then and and then just a big gap with everybody else. So Wasim, you started this conversation thinking about, well, this issue of the individual and job opportunities. But the question you just asked and the response Tom just said is, what will this do to the competitive structure of firms. And already some prominent economics of information economists, and this is sort of before the super AI wave, have documented this phenomenon of superstar firms, the people who sort of are the ones who dominate the platform, 
right? There's already a number of industries. We're all familiar with this happens. And once that happens, very, very hard for everybody else to compete unless you sort of work through that platform. So what happens as in almost every industry, a very small number of players become AI superstar firms in their ability not to do projects, but to pervasively embed this in the fabric of everything they do. And the more of it they do, the faster they get at being able to deploy new things. And the marginal cost of supporting the yet next thing, it you know, continues to drop. So that's sort of beyond the remit I play in, because I don't really understand competitive strategy and all that kind of stuff. But just as technology has in a documented way been an important factor in changing the nature of the income distribution across employees. Let's not so much consider investment income, but look at salary income. And there's sort of been a bifurcation with people who are educated. Uh, their income and opportunities has been highly amplified by technology in general and the recent wave of AI in particular. And there's been an interesting growth in the other extreme of the very service-oriented personal touch things. And, you know, of course, you'll get the superstar chef who makes a lot of money. There are examples like that. But in the main, the majority of those folks are in very low-paid um, occupations, a lot of them, like the Uber driver, not in very secure kinds of jobs. And a hollowing out in the middle. Not, not necessarily a, a uh, decrease in total numbers of things like production workers or routine clerical workers, but a dramatic drop in the share relative to the total number of jobs in the economy. All right. So but that's thinking of individuals. What you just asked and what Tom just responded is you're going to get this bifurcation of the distribution along the um, axis of firms and their ability to compete. So that's sort of beyond what I can envision. But um, this bit about the rich get richer, the strong get stronger, they do it at an increasing rate. That's not a bad thing. These the capital ones of the world should be rewarded for their tremendous efforts, like the DBSs of the world in Singapore. Um, so there, there are some issues, just like we need to keep a watch on this uh, dramatic uh, income inequality issues, because it does lead to social problems. Uh, we got to keep a watch. I'm not saying control or regulate, but there are some interesting dynamics that, that might accelerate some trends of industry concentration that are totally new territory. Uh, beyond what we've seen before. So we have to leave that to people who've got that kind of expertise. Uh, and again, analyzing that kind of stuff is labor-intensive work. This leads us nicely to my next question. Uh, 
let us dig deep on some of the examples but i want to start with this point that one thing that i really really liked about the book is the variety of use cases that you covered and uh, um, when i opened this discussion i just mentioned that ai is becoming better and better in narrowly focused and narrowly defined tasks i think that a certain level of imagination is required sometimes to understand that ai can be applied to such a variety of areas so a variety of use cases it just happened or this was an intentional thing that you will go and find a large spectrum of these use cases uh i think we wanted to do that we you know we didn't want to have 29 or 30 examples of um credit card authorization <laughs> you know uh um which has been done with ai for a long time um i think it um so probably i don't know maybe steve wasn't surprised i was a little bit surprised at how many different use cases and um industry problems are being addressed by ai you know seemingly quite successfully based on our our research um you know and we looked at uh digital weeding using ai uh several things in the medical field a number in financial services some in manufacturing it's um uh and there were a lot more that we could have done had we had the time and the the space in the book and fashion industry and so many other examples steve can continue on that yeah but yeah, so let me build on what tom said and pick up on your theme of narrow versus general personal computers mobile phones websites uh they're used across the board a to z any industry small medium and large So let's let's get down to earth. AI isn't mysticism. It isn't special. It's it's a combination of more data, more compute. And by the way, not all AI is more data. You still have reasoning, you still have planning, uh you know, so you you have the big areas of reasoning, uh planning, learning, communication, perception, and interesting hybrids of all this kind of stuff, all right? But it's broadly speaking a computing and IT technology if computing and IT is applied everywhere why shouldn't ai be able to be applied everywhere now here's the duality that you sort of have to wrap your head around at the same time what we have seen from our 29 and what tom and i know from just countless other examples above and beyond the book is to be successful each deployment has to be very focused now as 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 tom said there's some of these superstar firms that build a general infrastructure that allows to more quickly do a particularly focused thing but it's still always the case that you have to have a focused use case right even if you have a more productive way to handle hundreds of use cases all right so to to make this stuff work like anything in a business it's no surprise you need focus you need niche you need all the complementarity you need the associated process refinements you need a lot of 
alignment with what's coming into the process, what's going out, et cetera. So not unlike computing in general, there's a million places across lots of industries where you can do focused things. So computing is a general purpose technology. Electricity is a general purpose technology. The AI enhancement of computing, and, and we know AI involves a little bit more than computing because there's the data and the methods, the algorithms, but the AI enhancement to computing is a general purpose technology. So of course we expect it to be able to be applied everywhere. Now, some people, some prominent colleagues that Tom has say, of course, electricity, um, computing, the general purpose technologies, but this has the power of a general purpose technology that's beyond what we ever have seen before. And let me remind you, I might be a little off on the dates and I might be a little off on the exact uh, attribution of the quote, but it was something like 20 to 25 years after Edison developed the light bulb. So I think it was around 1907, where the light bulb work was a few decades earlier, that he made this statement, um, something about electricity. It, it, it's, it's like the field of all fields. And it's got the ability to sort of unlock the secrets of everything. Now, he turned out to be right, but not in ways he imagined. It wasn't sort of the kind of electrical equipment he imagined. He, he couldn't have thought of semiconductors, right? And everything that came from there. But we're saying the same thing now with AI enablement. It's the field of all fields. And in a way that is because every, Talk to any of your friends in any area of academics, and I literally mean anywhere, it's changing the way they do their investigations. People are using supercomputers and then uh, doing simulations to generate kinds of test data that then feed into machine learning models that are changing the fundamental aspect of how certain aspects of scientific investigation are being done. And interestingly enough, that stuff will propagate to industry. You know, it, it will take a decade or so, but we'll be able to do a lot of new things. So this duality of you need to be very specific to get something done, narrow, but you're able to do that anywhere. Now, uh, I'll ask you to pick at least uh, one example, one case study from the book. Tom and Steve give our listeners two examples uh, in total. So, Tom, which one you will pick? Why you think that was very interesting to investigate that particular use case and um, um, what we can learn from that? Uh, one that I have been quite interested in and have done some other work on, uh, wrote a case study for Babson on it, is the sort of precision policing example at a city in North Carolina, um, Wilmington, North Carolina. And it uses a um, 
couple of interesting technologies that Steve was talking about. One is um, sort of sensor technology for gunshot detection. And sadly, in the United States, we have a really big problem with um, excessive numbers of guns and um, excessive gunshots. And it turns out um, people are quite unreliable in terms of uh, accurately reporting where guns have been shot. And so having sensors on the top of electrical poles, light poles, and so on that tell police exactly where a gunshot has gone off, incredibly useful at, you know, getting to the scene of that um, gunshot quickly, finding out if someone was hit by the by the bullet that came out of the gun, um, finding the bad guys who did it, etc. And then um, based in part on that gunshot data, there is also a kind of a recommendation engine about where uh, an individual police officer should spend his or her time um, if um, they want to catch bad guys. And um, I think that it's an interesting um, example, not only of the sort of efficiency that AI can provide, but it also raises a number of interesting ethical issues about, okay, if it turns out that... Um, most crimes occur in poor neighborhoods and most gunshots come from poor neighborhoods, then does that mean that we should have the um, cops sitting in the poor neighborhoods all the time and so they can catch more criminals? Um, but uh, is that really fair? Um, more cops tend to reveal more crimes, etc. So it's it's a kind of a um, vicious cycle in a way. So this company, ShotSpotter is the name of it, has, I think, um, done a pretty good job of saying, um, you know, we're not only going to look at poor neighborhoods, we're not going to look at where individual criminals live, we're only going to look at serious crimes, not um, minor, relatively minor property crimes, etc. Um, but um, it's something that I think changes the the job of the police force, um, the particular police woman that we interviewed said, you know, cops are notorious for not liking to change very much. So it's a slow process, but um, in general, I think it's something that will create more fair policing and more effective policing over time. So that's why I found it just, really interesting. Steve. Just uh, a comment on the same case that uh, Tom, that. He can't resist anything that no, I bring up. No. He can't resist so there's about a case it. where the AI clearly gives capabilities beyond what were possible before. So the the issue isn't the AI per se, but the judgment that the police use in how they use these inputs and recommendations and how that gets blended into judicial process, standards of evidence, uh, as they say, you know, community issues on uh, fairness. So it, it raises a lot of interesting issues, change management issues. So every interesting AI deployment for different reasons is actually a big change management thing. 
because it, it really does change some aspects of how work is done. So uh, that, you know, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful example. I'm going to take another example that's everyday work. It, it's not um, office, well, what we used to call office work. So it's this uh, iconic shopping mall in Singapore that was built on an old airport parking lot. And it's called um, Jewel because it looks like a jewel. The way they did it, it's like an architectural wonder. It's got the world's largest waterfall. It's got thousands of plants. You know, it's like an eco lifestyle and also, you know, commercial thing with shops and uh, uh, lots of food and beverage. All right. Steve works part time for the Singapore Tourist Authority. Yes, so that's yes, why he's yes, yes. this Singapore in my blood. Yes. And um, so this interview was with the people who do the nitty gritty everyday work of the security, the physic, not the cyber, but the physical security of the mall, the facility maintenance. This is a huge place. It's five underground stories, like uh, five or seven up above ground stories and all kinds of unusual environment. And they do the guest concierge services. And it's Changi Airport, which has been awarded the world's best airport on teen times. So the service standards are very high. All right. So without blanketing the place with sensors, it'd be impossible to monitor, right? How are you going to monitor all the moisture and humidity condition for the thousands of plants in there, right? And how would you monitor if people are getting too close to certain no-enter zones or some dangerous zones uh, related to getting too close to certain parts of the, uh, the infrastructure works for the waterfall? So you obviously have to blanket it with um, cameras and various kinds of sensors. And you have to have a lot of people on the ground for the guest concierge, as well as for security and facilities. All right. So they have this mission control thing and the data flows in, as we can easily imagine. Obviously, you cannot handle all the alarming without AI pattern processing for the sensors and the vision to help with the alarming. But it's it's a complex, multifaceted, evolving environment. So yeah, you can build in rules to the alarm, right? And you can automate some aspects of handling some types of things that you might be able to auto um, verify. But there's so many possible situations of why the alarm is coming up. And if some of what you see is a person has spilled, uh, there's a little bit of wet water on the floor that, you know, shouldn't happen, but it is. And somebody takes a fall. How do you assess that situation, right? The uh, automated visual analysis can say a person fell, but then what? You know, is it crowded or not? What do you do next? So you obviously have to have the people there with the AI-enabled Um, analysis of all the sensor streams. Now, there's another side of it that brings out some other really interesting aspects with the workforce. So you have your ground forces, your your security and your concierge people, and they all have a mobile phone enabled thing. And through the mobile phone and the sensors, the mission control people know where all the, the people are. 
right? Now, if you've ever had friends who had to deal with like managing people in the security services, right? Um, a lot of your workers are not your 20 and 30 year olds, you know? Uh, I, I, I don't want to sort of give, uh, I don't know exactly what it is, but you know, it's no secret. You might use a lot of 50 year olds, 60 year olds, and even older for this kind of work, okay? And the thing that everyone in the industry hated, not just in Singapore, but every place, was the problem with finding an incident is, I have to write an incident report. What a pain. And the people doing this work, you know, they're not your English majors or whatever language it is they're operating in, right? They hate to write incident reports. So through a combination of digitalization, process improvement, some aspects of AI enablement, dramatic simplification of take a picture, make a few comments, send the thing on, and then on the back end, it's got the intelligence to know how to process it, it's time-stamped, simplified things dramatically. So the point I wanna bring out in this one is, there was an older workforce who, not entirely, but, but some of the ground workforce included a fair share of older people to whom the transition of using these new tools was, you know, it's not like your 19-year-old, right? At the same time, the same tool made um, where do I know where to go and how do I do my check-in and how do I do the incident report, it dramatically simplified. So although for the existing employees, it required some hand-holding and adjustment, so much time was saved in getting rid of grunt work. Like, okay, everybody, what's your patrol roster? Because that was all automated and the AI would help on sort of what the rostering was. So they were able to recoup so much time that they could put it into the transition of hand-holding and helping the range of the workforce to make the adjustments. That's a really cool story. And the other thing is, it actually makes it easy for some people in their 60s and older to extend their working life because certain parts of the job are easier once you get the hand-holding for how to adapt to the digital tool. So while there are some examples of where the use of robotic process automation might take away some opportunities, here is an example of something that's actually making a job more accessible to certain segments of the population that especially need that kind of job. And it simplified the task. So, it's not AI only, it's AI in conjunction with this whole digital transformation thing and you know, a lot of other supporting aspects. But this is Tom's thing about the nature of, the changing nature of work, the future of work. And you see these things now, it's not just future. Tom, you were about to say something or? Uh, uh, just that Steve and I are going to take up these um, jobs as soon as we stop teaching, we're going to um, uh, be become uh, security and conspiracy <laughs> They've made it easier for old guys like us. Uh, yeah. And thankfully they'll have big print. 
We are discussing your book, Working with AI, Real Stories of Human-Machine Collaboration. Uh, we have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in the book. Obviously, there is a lot more in the book. However, is there anything else, anything particular that you suggest we should discuss before we close this discussion? Uh, Tom, I come first to you. Um, you know, I think one of the more interesting things that we pulled out of the book actually for an article in MIT Sloan Management Review is sort of what machines can't do. And, um, you know, we spent a lot of time in the book talking about interesting things they can do, but um, there, there are definitely some things that um, humans are good at. Maybe we've touched on those some in this, in this podcast already, but not all of them, certainly. Can you give one or two more examples, Tom? Uh, and we'll go to Steve in a minute. Well, yeah, you had mentioned the um, the fashion example, this company Stitch Fix, which uses AI to recommend um, clothing items for um, customers, um, typically based on things they've ordered in the past. And they have a kind of a... Um, uh, swipe left, swipe right kind of analysis that you do when you sign up to show the kinds of, of um, clothing samples you particularly like and, and don't like. But um, the thing that I thought was most interesting um, that the human stylists still continue to do is to interpret these notes that people send in for the occasion for which they're ordering these clothes. So they might say something like, well, um, you know, I'm seeing my husband uh, for the first time after a long tour of duty uh, in the army overseas. So, you know, I want to be particularly appealing looking or um, I'm going to a wedding and my um, ex will be there and I want to make him jealous. So, you know, uh, and I don't know if computers will ever be able to do a good job of analyzing those bizarre human emotions um, but um, right now it requires humans and they, you know, might make sure that the color is uh, red or wh whatever <laughs> the um, response is to those kinds of emotion oriented things that computers can't make any sense of. Steve? Just... Uh, uh, Tom's going to laugh because I have to make one comment on just what he said, but... We have seen GPT-3 and a whole host of technologies like that that have shown that with no ability to engage with the physical world, you can still be aware of a lot. And just based on this awareness, even with superficial understanding, you can come up with a lot of plausible, decent responses. But even that has its limits. And the examples Tom gave, if you don't have lived experience, the, you just don't get the meanings of those things, right? So there, uh, people are surprised just how much you could do if you have a vast amount of data and you know have the GP3-like things, but even those have their limits. And Tom very perceptively gave some wonderful examples of some of those limits. It's not the limit of the ability of the computer to take in the sentence and, you know, try and match it with something. It just doesn't have 
it doesn't understand because it doesn't have the mental model of the lived experience. All right. So my wrap up comments are Tom and I together, we put together a summary piece where we compared some of our findings to the findings of the wonderfully done MIT Work of the Future Task Force work. All right. So uh, we had different samples. We looked at some industries they didn't. They looked at some industries in more depth. You know, they read like a million research reports and et cetera. We, we were sort of more business focused and et cetera, et cetera. Okay. But even though we came at it from a different way and a different approach to doing our respective case studies, we both saw the same thing. So that's cross-validation. We did not see this rapid wave of a huge high degree of automation coming in imminently about to displace a lot of people, right? They, they saw it from their uh, detailed studies in four or five industries. We saw it from the kind of case studies we did across these 29 examples. That tremendous change is happening and while AI and the methods and the technologies are moving very rapidly. Organizational transitions don't move rapidly. They saw it, we saw it. So that's very important. So no, we're not on the verge of mass displacement. All right, the second that I came back, the very opening point I made is we made our our 29 examples prove that there are so many more opportunities for complementing, amplifying, supporting people through augmentation than people assume. The opportunities are all over the place. So don't just default to the only thing I can do is move in the direction of fully automating uh, the work of today. Now, Augmentation might be an intermediary step. And some of the things we saw augmented, uh, augmented might in some years be fully automated. Um, but then for those companies to stay in business, they're gonna be ne needing to expand into other new things, right? So we wanna see these people deployed, <laughs> redeployed in some kind of way. So um, we're gonna have automation and augmentation and one of the things we saw in almost all of our studies, right, the ones Tom did, the ones I did, was the effort of, of systematizing whatever you were doing and moving in the AI model freed up a lot of grunt work. And we saw it in almost every example we had. And the issue is how are we gonna use the dividends of that grunt work we free up? How are we going to redeploy it, right? And if we redeploy it in a constructive way, it's win-win for both the company and the employee. Uh, some companies might have a little less inspired approach as to how they'll redeploy it. And then the next time they try and do a uh, project, people aren't gonna be so cooperative. So we need to find some win-win way to move together with this. Uh, any last comment, uh, Tom? No, just thanks for thanks for having us, giving us the ability to talk about these issues, which we think are pretty important for um, uh, the world we're living in today. 
Professor Stephen Miller, Professor Thomas Davenport, thank you very much uh, for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps.